Hi, this is Pastor Dave Rosales, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. If you've been impacted by these Bible studies, we'd like to hear from you. Whether you're listening through iTunes, Google Play, or any other platform, tap on the stars and leave us a review. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. If you'd like to support this ministry, would you consider partnering with us? Visit our website at calvaryccv.org and click on Give. You can leave us a one-time gift or set up a recurring general donation. Thank you for your support. And now let's begin today's message. We're going to be looking at the church in Sardis, the church that has been called the church of dead orthodoxy. And I'll be looking at that with you in a minute. But what I wanted to do today is to... uh, is to begin with a uh, actually showing you a a painting a painting that was uh, created by uh, Vincent Van Gogh, and it's called the Church in Avers, and I'm going to show you that in just a minute. But let me read this passage to you. Then I'm going to ask for that that uh, slide to be put up, and I'm going to share some things with you about that as my introduction. So beginning here in chapter three. Verse 1, and Jesus says to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so we're going to be looking at Sardis, a church that is, that is dead in its orthodoxy. And so I wanted to illustrate that uh, by making mention of a painting that I saw. It was, as mentioned a moment ago, it was painted by Vincent van Gogh. Uh, he lived in 1853 to around 1890. And he composed this particular painting, The Church in Auvergne, that I want to show you because I want to make a comment about that. So let's turn the lights off and let's put that slide up and let me share a few things about this particular church. And I want you to look at this painting because there's a reason that I'm showing you this painting. I want you to see that the church is situated at a fork in a road. Notice how there's no direct path into the church itself. Look behind it. You see a night sky. And that night sky takes up a large part of the painting. But notice that that sky is without stars. So that is intended to communicate emptiness. If you look closely at the church roof, notice how it looks unstable. It's even trembling. There's no door allowing entrance and no light in the church building. When you look at it, it appears empty. 
Notice the woman. There's a woman walking by, passing by, as she's heading into darkness. This church in Auvers, Auvers is actually in France, but if you looked closely at the woman, she's a, a Dutch woman representing uh, the roots for, uh, for Van Gogh. But notice how she's passing by. She's heading into darkness. She's totally alone as she passes by. So the church building he painted is simply a building. It's a building without life. Art critics and experts have said that this is how he viewed the church of his day. If you knew anything about Van Gogh, you would know that his father was a Dutch Reformed pastor and that his grandfather was a theologian. At an early age, he desired to be a pastor, but he was not accepted into seminary. He tried to become a missionary. He went to a coal mining village in Belgium when he was 26 years old. And somebody wrote, taking Christianity to its logical conclusion, Van Gogh lived like those he preached to, sleeping on straw in a small hut at the back of the baker's house where he was staying. The baker's wife reported hearing Van Gogh sobbing at night in the hut. His choice of squalid living conditions did not endear him to the church authorities, which dismissed him for undermining the dignity of the priesthood. So this experience may have helped him develop his view of the church. It has a name that it's alive, but it's dead. If you look from a distance, the church building appears to be welcoming, but it's without life. And the condition of the church of his day mirrors the concerns of Jesus for the church in Sardis. It has an appearance of life, but in fact, it's dead. So let's turn the lights off and on again, and then we'll get rid of that painting. So, in Sardis. Sardis has spiritual darkness, a spiritual darkness that results um, from the false teaching and bad living. Their reputation was that they were alive, but Jesus said they were really dead. Now, I introduced the study of these seven letters by saying that each letter has a threefold application. You have what is called the primary, meaning that this letter had a direct bearing on a specific congregation. So you have these different uh, cities with churches, and so it was written to that church. This is the church in the city of Sardis. It had direct bearing on a specific congregation, but also it had a second application, and that is the personal. Each church has people within it who need to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, and then you have the prophetic, and we've been looking at it from the prophetic angle, and the prophetic represents seven stages of church life, from Pentecost, the birth of the church, all the way to the rapture of the church. And so when you look at these seven letters, these letters from Jesus reveal a slow deterioration throughout church history. They reveal that the church over time slowly is losing her witness to the world. Now, again, each letter contains a message to specific churches of the first century. These churches were being spoken to by Jesus for current conditions and problems. But prophetically, the messages apply to churches throughout history. They are applicable to us today as we read these letters and as we are instructed by them. And so we looked at Ephesus. Prophetically, Ephesus represents the church in her infancy. The, the dating of that would be Pentecost to A.D. 160. And that's the church that Jesus said has left their first love. Then we looked at Smyrna. 
Smyrna represents the suffering church from AD 64 to 312. It overlapped the apostolic age. Then you have Pergamos representing the compromising church from AD 313 to 600. This was a church guilty of being worldly and immoral and was infiltrated with, with bad teaching. Then you had Thyatira. And as I was mentioning the last time we were together, Thyatira prophetically is the apostate church from 600 to 1500 AD. And we looked at this last time and we saw that Thyatira tolerated a prophetess, self-called prophetess named Jezebel, and she was introducing heresy, idolatry, as well as moral impurity. So today we're going to be looking at Sardis, the next church. Now Sardis was situated in a, a fertile valley 30 miles southeast of Thyatira in modern Turkey. It was important. It was a wealthy city. It was on a commercial trade route. And much of the wealth resulted from textile manufacturing as well as its, its dye industry and jewelry trade. As for religion, most of the city practiced pagan worship with mystery cults and secret societies. A temple established for Artemis, also known as Diana, the virgin goddess of hunting and childbirth, traditionally associated with the moon, well, this, this temple was there. They worshipped the, the goddess Sibylle, who was known as the Great Mother, was mistress of wild nature. She was thought to be a healer and was the goddess of procreation. She was worshipped through orgies and sexual depravity. The origin of the church is unknown. Some say Paul may have planted the church. Others say John may have planted the church. But the church is there in a place called Sardis. Sardis literally means the escaping ones. That's what the word means, or those who come out. And prophetically, Sardis represents what we call the Reformation. Now, each letter had a primary element. Each had a personal application. And each letter has a prophetic element. And prophetically, Sardis represents what has been called dead orthodoxy. That would especially refer to 1500 to 1750 A.D., which is the time of what has been called historically the Protestant Reformation. You see, by 1500, idolatry and impurity, as well as bad doctrine, has already infiltrated and leavened the church. We've seen this in the studies we've been looking at through the churches. And I mentioned to you that praying for the dead, the office of pope, worshiping saints and angels, the establishment of the mass, the worship of Mary, the canonization of dead saints, the doctrine of transubstantiation, the practice of only priests reading and teaching the Bible, purgatory, Catholic tradition given equal authority with the Bible, well, that had already found its way into the church through the Roman church. And so history records that various believers broke away from what was called the Roman church. And history records their sufferings. The leaders of the Reformation were men such as Wycliffe and Zwingli, men like Knox and Calvin and Luther. And the break occurred October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Catholic Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And it's said that his voice resounded in the ears of so many who were tired of the Roman system. I was reading about this, and, and somebody said when Martin Luther was called to give a defense of his beliefs, this is what he said. Martin Luther said, since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, 
I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by Scripture in plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. And that's the word, the cry that began what we call the Protestant Reformation. And so those who were part of the Protestant Reformation were called reformers. And the reformers taught and believed that the church had drifted from the essentials of Christianity. And because of this, they summarized their theological convictions with five phrases. And many of you have already heard these phrases. Let me read the phrases to you. Sola Scriptura. The Bible alone is our highest authority. Sola fide, we are saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Sola gratia, we are saved by the grace of God alone. Solus Christus, Jesus Christ alone is our Lord, Savior, and King. And solideo gloria, we live for the glory of God alone. These are the alone statements of the reformers. You see, the church started out well, but over time it became an institution and the life of the Spirit had been quenched and it is now being replaced by dead orthodoxy. These reformers had seen these evils creep in. They said, we can't do this. We need to follow what Scripture says. We need to live by faith. We, we need to understand the grace of God. We need to know that Jesus is preeminent. Everything should be done by the, to the glory of God and to God alone. Those were the, that was the cry of the reformers. And that's what you see when the Reformation began around 1500 to 1750, that, that 250-year period. And so they had awakened, and, and there were truths that were being rediscovered. But prophetically, what was happening was the church was dying and had become uh, the, what, what at one time had been that the spirit leading, what, what happened is the spirit had been quenched and it was replaced by dead orthodoxy, believing the right things without the passion of faith attached to it. And so Jesus is speaking prophetically, and I want to look at that. That's what we'll be looking at today. So in verse 1, it begins, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name that you're alive, but you are dead. So, it begins with him saying, these things says he who has the seven spirits and the seven stars. Now that description, that self-description, referring to Jesus is taken from chapter 1, verse 4, as well as verse 16. So when he speaks of the one who has the seven spirits, the seven spirits represents the fullness or completeness of the Holy Spirit. That's an image that is revealed in the Old Testament when it's referring to Messiah. In the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, it reads, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. That's a prophetic thing related to Messiah. A rod out of the stem of Jesse, a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And so it's described, the Holy Spirit is described in a sevenfold way. You have, the seven, uh, you have the Spirit of the Lord 
but also it's de he's described as spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. It's a sevenfold explanation of the Holy Spirit. And so by saying seven spirits, he's declaring that he possesses what is called the fullness of the Spirit. Because seven is the number of completion. And so Jesus is the one who has the seven spirits. And so that's saying Jesus possesses the fullness of the Holy Spirit. In John 3.34, it says, For he is sent by God. He speaks God's words. For God's Spirit is upon him without measure or without limit. And so Jesus is the one with the fullness of the Spirit. In other words, he's the one who is in control of the church through the Holy Spirit. Spiritual work requires spiritual workers. And so we need the Spirit's help in our lives. We can't accomplish the work of God in our own energy, in our own intellect. We can't do that. We need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is reminding the church from the beginning, I am the one who has the seven spirits. I am the one who has the completeness and fullness of the Spirit. And all spiritual work is done through the power of the Spirit. So we can't accomplish His work without His Spirit. In Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24, it reads, This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. So you cannot accomplish spiritual work without the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is simply beginning by saying that I lead the church, and I do that by my Spirit. Everything that the church does in the world is intended to be accomplished by the Spirit. And that's something that I think the church needs to remember, especially in these last days. I fear that the church is being led to believe more in our efforts than his work. I see that today very clearly. A.W. Tozer said it like this. He said, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everyone would know the difference. And I believe that what we're dealing with right now is the quenching of the Spirit through human effort. And Jesus was speaking even in this time and saying this is something you need to be aware of. You have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. He, he taught us, Jesus taught us that the church was to rely on the power and presence of his spirit. He, he had told us in the gospel of John, he had said his Holy Spirit would abide with us forever. That his Holy Spirit would teach us spiritual truth. That his Holy Spirit would bring to our remembrance the things that he had taught us. He taught us that we would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon us. He said, you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. So God promised, Jesus promised, that he would baptize us in the power of his Spirit and that all the work that we were to do was to be the result of his Spirit's power. So it's by the Spirit's power and the fruit of the Holy Spirit that we're to, we're to serve him. In the Old Testament book of Zechariah, chapter 4, verse 6, it says it like this. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, 
but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. You see, in Sardis, sin and failure were a sure indication that the spirit was not moving. These people were quenching the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is reminding, and he's reminding the pastor of this, because it says in verse 1, to the angel, to the messenger, to the pastor of the church in Sardis, write these things, says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven stars were all the pastors or messengers of the church. These are the seven angels. So he's saying that he's the one who anoints the pastors of each church. And the ministry of the pastor is to be the direct result of Jesus' anointed by his spirit. It's his spirit that gives, and it's his spirit that equips the pastor. And the pastor needs to remember this. One of the dangers of having a church that has a reputation of being alive is that you can begin taking the credit for the, 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 the reputation of that church. You can begin to think as the messenger, as the pastor, that it's due to all of your efforts and all of your wisdom and all of your direction and all of the things that you have. You can begin to think that you're responsible for that church's life. And Jesus is saying, no. He's saying, I'm the one with the fullness of the Spirit, and I'm the one who holds you in my hand. I'm the one, Pastor, who anointed you. I'm the one who directs you. I'm the one who teaches you. I'm the one who leads the church. I have entrusted the church to you, but you take orders from me because Jesus is saying, I am the sovereign. I am the Lord of the church. And so the pastor is accountable to Jesus, and that's why Jesus addresses him. The pastor is a shepherd, and he's to lead, and he's to feed and care for the people of the church. In 1 Peter 5, 2 and 3, it says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Not being the bully, not being the big deal, not being the guy who walks in, in the church and everybody goes, oh, there's the pastor over there. Not being that. You need to be known as the servant in the body of Christ, pastor, not the superstar, not the hero. You are a servant, and you need to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit if your church is going to be alive. And that's what Jesus is saying. You are accountable to me, so I'm speaking to you about this. And as a result of the outflow of your ministry, there are things that are present in that church. And that's why he says, I know your works that you have a name, that you're alive, but you are dead. I know your works thoroughly. I see the imperfection of them. They appear to men as good, but these works are being done without love for me. It's possible that they had a reputation in that area for being an active church. They were the church alive that was worth the drive. And so he's saying, I'm aware of you. I'm aware just the way others are, but I've been observing you, and I've been looking closely at you, and what you don't see, I can see. I think my first job that I had, which I had a few of them, I'm looking for water, I don't have any here. John, could you do me a favor? Could you shine my shoes? No. <laughs> Thank you, John. My throat's dry. Where, where do you see water? Well, oh, I won't touch it. I'll get COVID. 
You don't love me, Henry. I know you don't. <laughs> Thank you, John. Can I stand up here with you? Would you stand with me? You want some water? <laughs> A dollar. <laughs> yeah. There's a church alive that's worth the drive. I actually saw a billboard that said that, and I thought, how interesting is that? Well, you're, you're, you're presenting yourself as being very important in all of that, you know? And perhaps this church was known in that way, that they were... Uh, well, they were. Jesus said it. You have a name that you're alive, but in reality, you're dead. I'm looking at you closely. When I was a, uh, a young boy, I was 12, and I got my first job. And my first job was working for my mom, and I don't recommend that. Um, <laughs> because my mom was tough. And so my job was to wash windows. She had a, a dress shop called Bonnie's Dress Shop. And uh, my mom's name was Bonnie Connection. So she gave me $10 to wash her windows. Now, in 1962, I didn't realize how much money that is. If you look back at 62, $10, that's really a lot of money. I didn't know that. But she gave me like 10 bucks to wash her windows. But they were, they, you know, they were big bay window, big plate windows that you have in business. And, and I, was, I was washing the windows for her, and it's a lot of window, and I'm 12 years old, my mom stood over my shoulder, and I would finish, and she'd point out the defects. She'd say, oh, right there, you missed a spot. Right there, you missed a spot. Then I had to go back and wash it again. She did that every week. And then finally one day, she was over my shoulder. It was a Saturday. Saturday, I still remember it. I'm 12 years old. I'm standing there, and and she says, oh, you missed a spot. And I have to be honest with you, you're not going to like this, but it's true. I took the rag that I was using, I threw it on the ground. And I said, wash it yourself. And I left. And I quit. The first job I ever had, I quit. And it was with my mother. It was my mommy. My mom was a perfectionist. I'm very much that way now. I tell that to Maria. I say, oh, you know, these things rub off on you because I'm... I'm that guy who looks and says, well, John can tell you, he's with me a lot. I'll say, we need to change that, and that needs to be changed. I learned that from my mom. So I kind of understand, in a way, what Jesus is saying. What other people aren't noticing, I notice. What you think is okay, is not. And that's what he's saying to them. I have looked at what you're doing, and I haven't found them perfect before me. I, they, they may appear to, to men to be good, but I see the motives behind the actions. And so, even though you have a reputation for being alive and active, uh, the fact is, is what you're doing is really not something I'm pleased with. You have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. You become famous for faith and diligence, for devotedness to me. Your outside appearance of holiness has caused people to think you're Christians. You appear to be alive in the spirit, but in fact, you're spiritually dead. You have a reputation, a reputation of being on fire. Your spiritual life is, in reality, dried up. The appearance of life is due to a reputation that you once had as, as being a powerful church. But now, you are Christian in name only. 
your theology is right, but you have people there who are unsaved. This is a church quenching the Spirit of God. This is a church taught, caught in dead orthodoxy. You have truth without passionate dependence on it. There's no genuine faith in Jesus Christ. The members of this church are unsaved. They're dead in trespasses and sins. They claim to believe the right things, but they're never really acting on those things. They've never really been saved. They're like, like a body in a casket. We've all gone to funerals, and there's that body in the casket, dressed in a beautiful dress or great suit, looking, you know, dressed up and nice, but dead. There's no life in that casket, just a dressed up dead body. And that's what the church is. What is a pastor to do with a church like that? What do you do when you have a church that appears to be alive, but in fact is spiritually dead? Because Jesus is closely inspecting that church. What is the pastor to do to remedy this, this situation? Well, verse 2, Jesus begins to tell him. He says, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are, are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. So he begins to give him instructions. He says, be watchful. Now, when he says, be watchful, that is to remind them that he's returning soon. So wake up, he's saying, and give your life to me. He's saying, expect my soon return to planet Earth. And the pastor should be encouraging the church to be prepared to be with Jesus Christ. You see, the expectation of the rapture spurs us to service to the Lord. I had never heard of such a thing as a rapture. I had never heard of it. Because the, uh, the church system that I was raised in didn't teach us about a rapture, didn't teach us that Jesus was going to come and take us. We didn't hear, I never heard that in my life. And so I got saved. And when I got saved, <clears throat> I started hearing messages about the return of Christ. And from the beginning, when I was 20 years old, I was taught, be ready. He's coming at any moment. So you need to live in expectation of being with Jesus Christ. And, and, and you can't go to sleep at the wheel. You need to be awake, and you need to be ready. And, and that's what the Bible teaches. Believers are to live expecting to see Jesus at any time, so we're to be prepared for him when he comes. There are so many scriptures that say that. Let me give you a few. Matthew chapter 24, verse 42. Watch, therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord does come. Matthew 25, 13. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. The word watch means be on the alert, be expecting. Watch, be on the alert. James 5, 9. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Titus 2, verses 11 through 13. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 4, verse 8. 
Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. It's not enough for me to just expect it. It's to love it. It's to have an anticipation, to have a longing, a yearning, a desire to look forward to with expectation that Jesus is coming. And that means that we should be prepared at any moment because he can come at any moment. You see, Jesus said that a faithful servant is prepared at all times, but an evil one is not. In Matthew 24, 48 through 51, it says that the evil servant says, my master delays his coming, and then he goes on to live a cruel and sinful life because he doesn't believe that the master is really returning. While the church was filled with professing Christians who did not believe Jesus was returning, and so he says to them, be watchful, wake up, be aware, he's saying, because I'm returning. And secondly, he goes on to say, strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die. Come back to the foundations. Fan into flame the dying embers of your spiritual life. This church was busy performing deeds that were only going and were only going through the motions. It wasn't filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit. There was no concern in their hearts for the return of Christ or those who were lost. What is it that provoked somebody like me when I got saved to first go across the street? I didn't even go into my parents' house when I first got saved, December 27, 1970. I didn't even go into my parents' house when I returned from the Hollywood Palladium that day I got saved. I didn't go into the home. My friends dropped me off, or actually I, I drove home. I climbed out of my car but I didn't go into the house. The first thing I did is I crossed the street and went to a friend's house, a friend named Gil, Gil Nava, because I was supposed to get high with him that day because he had received a kilo of marijuana from Thailand. But instead of smoking pot with him and his family that day, his friends and family, family members, I had gone to a Jesus concert and I had given my heart to Christ. And the first thing I did is I went across the street to tell my friends about Jesus Christ. Gil was not there. His, his sister Mary Lou was not there. Gloria was not there, my friends. But his mother was there and a couple of the younger kids. And I sat at the table with them and I shared with them because they knew me because I had grown up across the street from them, and they'd known me a good portion of my life, and they knew that I was crazy, and I was a doper. They knew that. And so I sat at the table with them, and I said, I got saved today. Jesus Christ changed my life. He's washed me and cleansed me of all my sins, and I'm a new man, and I wanted to tell you. And that's the first thing I did. Then I went across the street to my parents' house where I was living, and I went in and opened the side door. I still remember doing this. Walked down this little hallway to the den where my parents and sister, sisters were. And that's when I stood at the doorway. And I said, Mom, Dad, Becky, Madeline, I love you. Praise the Lord. And I turned and walked away. And that's when my sisters both jumped out of the chair, rushed to where I was, and wanted to ask me, what happened to you? And when that happened, 
my mom and dad walked by me, and I was in the bathroom talking to my sisters, and I saw my mom stop at the door. And that's when she just looked at me as my dad was patting her on her back like, he's going to be okay. He's going to be okay. <laughs> True story. And my mom went to her bedroom and did a rosary for me because she was sure I had finally lost everything. That was my mom. And my sister Madeline that night climbed in her bed and said to Jesus, whatever you did for my brother, do it for me. And she gave her heart to Christ that night and got saved. What is it that made me do that? What is it that made me do that? It, it, it was because I had never heard that Jesus is returning. I had never really heard that he forgives you of your sins. I never heard that he cleanses you from all unrighteousness. I'd never heard that the power of the Holy Spirit could be within me, that I could have a new life, a transformed way of thinking and living. And, and that's what you need. And, and it's what caused me to, to, to tell people about Christ from the day I got saved to this day, almost 50 years later, I'm still telling people, you need Jesus Christ because that's what happened. That's what happens, you see? And, and a church is in spiritual danger when it's more concerned with appearance than reality. When it focus on, focuses on current problems more than changing people's hearts by the gospel. John MacArthur said, no matter what its attendance, no matter how impressive, impressive its buildings, no matter what its status in the community, such a church, having denied the only source of spiritual life, is dead. We need the power of the Spirit and a heart for people. A third thing, he says, remember therefore how you have received and heard and hold fast and repent. What's going to help you? What's going to bring you to life? Return to the truth of the Word of God. Hold fast in faith and trust like you once did. In 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14, hold fast the pattern of sound words which you've heard from me in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. You used to go to Bible studies. You used to be involved serving. You used to set everything up around your walk with God. What happened? When's the last time? Sometimes even in this fellowship, sometimes people can't even say they've ever been to a midweek Bible study. What happened? What happened? Because we can drift off into this kind of naive thinking that everything's going to be fine, but we're not walking with the Lord anymore. That's why we hold fast to his word, he says. In other words, return to the truth of God's word. Guard it. Take care of it. Cling to it in faith. Listen, we can stand in line for movies, stand in line for concerts, stand in line for sporting events, and stand in line for political speakers. But we need to value his word more. In Job 23, verse 12, we read, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. That's what it's supposed to be. God's word is to be received in faith. God's word is to be acted on. And God's word is to be known as that which nourishes and, and changes our lives. In Hebrews 4, verse 2, it says, Indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard didn't profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. They heard it, 
but they didn't do it. And that's why Jesus says, repent, confess, turn away from your sin. I will restore you. Because if you will not watch, then I'll come upon you as a thief. You're not going to know what happened. If you refuse to come back to me, there will be consequences. You have a name that you're alive, but in reality, the spirit is not within you. And the result will be that you will not be ready when I come for the church. In Matthew 24, verses 43 and 44, know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. And therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. He's going to come at a time that you may not be prepared. That's why you remain at the ready at all times, to be ready for the Lord's return. That's why you're in the Word. That's why you're in prayer. That's why you fellowship with believers. That's why you do those things. You want to be ready. You want to be prepared. You see, these people have a name that they're alive. This church has had a name that it's alive. I pastored this church now for almost 40 years. That's a long time. It's a long time to come every Sunday for almost 40 years and to teach and to share and to preach and encourage people. And I've seen this church. I've seen this church, obviously, from day one in a house of uh, with about 25, no more, <laughs> no more than 30 adults and about 5 to 10 kids. I've seen that, that small Bible study grow to, to 100 plus people when we're meeting in Vine Street. And, and I saw that 100 and some people grow to 300 plus people when we met in Ontario uh, Christian Elementary School. And then I saw that church grow when we purchased property on Maple Street in the city of Ontario and built out a 475-seat sanctuary and had triple services and outgrew that. And Wednesday nights, we had to put people in the halls. And, and I saw it grow when we went to, had, to, had to actually begin to rent a Ontario High School. It had 1,200 seats, and we had to go to double services. And then we moved over here, and we had triple services in a 1,000-seat sanctuary. That little chapel over there was built out to hold a little over a thousand. And then I saw it when our church built this and we had triple services and, the, and each service was really full. And I can remember having Easter services where we had four services in this sanctuary, a sanctuary that's had 2,500 people. And we had over 10,000 people on a Sunday morning for Easter. I've seen it. And then I've seen what happened over time when people have lost their zeal and have lost their, that, 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 that fire that they at one time had for Christ. I have pictures of me standing in the back looking at a place filled with people and then slowly but surely, and I began to wonder what happened. Is it me? Is it me? Have I lost my passion? Have I lost my fire? Have I lost it? Or is it us? What is it? What happened? We have a name that we're alive. What happened? I pray every day. God help us. Listen, I'm going to be honest with you and real. I'll use the first service for something else. I'll tell you this. If it's me, if I'm keeping you from growing, I will resign. And I will bring somebody in here 
who can fire you up for Jesus. Because if I can't, by his anointing, help you to know Jesus Christ, then my time is up. It's time for me to go. Because I do not want to be a church that has a name that it's alive, but it is dead. So let me know. If I'm not ministering to you anymore, let me know. I will step out because I want you to love the Lord. I want you to grow in Jesus. I'm being real with you. I want you to love Jesus more than anything. And if I keep you from that, I'm out of here. And I'm not saying that weirdly. I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that for sympathy. I don't need to get cards from you. I'm not saying that. I'm telling you the truth. My wife can tell you this. I pray every day for you. Every day. Every day. Every day. For you. So that God will move in your heart. And you know what? I can remember days when this church was so on fire for Jesus. Maybe we need to wake up. If it's me, God, do something in me. I pray that every day. If it's me, God, do something in me. But if it's us, wake us up. Wake us up. Because I want to be ready. And I'm being real. I, I'm, being, I'm being real with you. I'm not saying this for sympathy. I have visitors here who's going to say, that guy's whack. Okay, fine. <laughs> I'm just being real. I'm telling you the truth. That's my call. That's what God called me to do, to tell you the truth. And I'm telling you the truth. Because if my ministry does not reach you, then I shouldn't be here. Somebody should step in this pulpit and take you further. Because that's my heart for you. Believe it or not. No, I don't know everybody. No, I don't. But I love everybody. Because God gave you to me to pastor and I do it to the best of my ability but if I'm not enough for you I want the right person and I'm just being real because I don't want church that has a name that it's alive when in fact the people don't really care people are more excited about the World Series and Super Bowl than they are for Jesus Christ and I don't understand that. Well, that's just because you're old, Pastor. Really? It's because I'm old? Or is it because I love the Lord and I know what my priorities are supposed to be? I wonder. I wonder. And so I'm just, I just, I, I, that's not in my notes. I'm just telling you what's on my heart. And, you know, some of you won't be back next week. God bless you. But anyway, let's get back to my notes, shall we? It says in verse 4, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. In the midst of such a lifeless church, there are a few who are walking with Jesus. This occurs often. Amongst the dryness of the desert will be flowers that are growing. He says, they shall walk with me in white. That word white speaks of purity. They are worthy. Believers will be clothed by Jesus in robes of righteousness. In the description of the white-robed multitudes, notice this, in the passage, the picture is of righteousness of the saints, not the righteousness of God, because it demonstrates the faithful service of the followers of Jesus, which will be openly manifested. 
And notice in verse 5, he says, I will not blot him from the book of life. So those who overcome are recognized as God's own throughout eternity. The book of life. Well, Jesus makes a promise to never erase the name of a genuine believer. In Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, Paul said it like this. He said, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I will not blot his name from the book of life. The book of life contains the names of those who have trusted in the Lord. Later on in Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, it says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. In Revelation 21, 27, it says, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So this is not a threat that he's going to remove a name. It's a promise that he will not. Jesus is promising to never remove their names from the list of the saved. And he says, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. When we've been able to give open invitations, I will normally quote this scripture found in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, where it says, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who's in heaven. And so he says, you will be open and you will confess me. And I, in turn, will be confessing you. And therefore, if you have an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I think we're living in a critical time in the United States. Let me close by just making a couple of observations and then we'll pray. We're living in a critical time in the United States. I believe very strongly that we are seeing our nation being transformed. I'm not saying anything you haven't seen. I'm just saying I've noticed the same thing. This nation is transforming. I'm old enough now to say I've seen it transform from something to something almost almost non-identifiable to the way it was when I grew up. And no, I'm not Mr. Sentimental. No, I'm not Mr. Nostalgic when it comes to, oh, I wish we had the good old days. Because the good old days had enough bad things in them to occupy them too. But our culture was different, entirely different. And, and those of you who are young wouldn't even understand this. You wouldn't understand this. The things that the, that the young have today, and it's not anybody's fault, it's just that we're different generations. What we have today and we take for granted today is something that to me was a marvel. And still, I still blow my mind at some of the things that are invented and created. You know, a time when, when um, you know, I grew up in the 50s, 60s and all, that led to my salvation in, in 1970. We, we lived in, in, in different kinds of times. I mean, we lived in a time when, when, when stores were actually closed on, on Sunday. Some of you are old enough to remember that stores were not open on Sunday. And sporting events didn't take place on Sunday. When I grew up, the Rams played on Saturday. And college ball was played on Saturday because Sunday was looked at as a national day of rest. That was in California, liberal California. It was a day of rest. The stores were closed. You, you, you would stay at home. And what would you do? Well, a lot of people went to church, and, and then you'd come home, and you really did eat those Sunday afternoon dinners of roast. You really did. 
Even we did. As Mexicans, we still ate roast <laughs> with tortillas, but we ate it. <laughs> it's true. My dad would give me a quarter on Sunday and say, go buy the Sunday paper. And there was a store down the street, not, not even a not even, uh, quarter mile away, not even a thousand, it was about, was maybe about 300 yards away. It was just down the street. And, and I would walk, and, and I'd have a quarter, because that's how much the Sunday paper used to cost way back then. And I would lift up a newspaper, and I would drop the quarter on a pile of quarters and take one of the papers and bring it home. A pile of quarters. Nobody stole those quarters. Nobody put them in their pocket and walked away with it. You could actually do that. You could actually, because you could trust people. I, we could sleep with our doors unlocked with the car keys in the ignition. That's how we slept at night. If it was hot, we opened up the windows. Nobody was climbing in. We weren't afraid we were going to get killed. You turn on the TV, there was no immoral, immorality. There was no swearing. Comedians were clean. They were actually funny and creative. <laughs> Different than today. They really were. You watch the shows that some of you know as the classics that were actually new when I was growing up, like I Love Lucy. And it was kind of amazing that Lucy got pregnant because she and Ricky slept in different beds. <laughs> it's true. Does anybody remember that? They lived in different beds. It was an entirely different time. They used to have what they called uh, laws that dealt with morality. There was a particular actress who was known for having an affair with a married man in, in, in Europe. And she had come to L.A., and they stopped her when she was trying to go through passport control, turned her around, and sent her back because she was an undesirable alien because she was living an immoral life. Can you believe that? We weren't parading those things at that time. That was how I grew up. And, 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 and people were kind to one another. If my bicycle was out too far by the curb, somebody would take my bike and put it in my backyard so that my dad wouldn't get mad at me because I had left the bike outside. We actually cared for one another. We even knew our neighbors' names. And in some neighborhoods, the mothers would spank other people's kids for being bad. That's true. That's true. That's true. See, so can you imagine what my, my mom said it to me before she went home to be with Jesus. My mom said, I'm ready to go. David, this world is so different. It's such a different world than I'm aware of. You see, my dad was in the Navy, fought in World War II, and my dad wasn't saved. My dad said, I'd go to a bar. He said, they'd see my uniform. They'd buy me a beer. He said, everybody was real patriotic. But me, Vietnam era. I didn't wear my uniform because I'd have things thrown at me or people would say things to me about being a baby killer. Different. It changed in my lifetime. And I've watched it. I've watched it. One thing after another. And a lot of us are frustrated. A lot of us are tired. A lot of us are saying, things have got to change. It isn't going to change by a new president. I hope we get a good one. God knows we need one. It's going to be changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that changes. I'm telling you. Be careful. Because we're being moved into the area of thinking we can vote in righteousness and you can't.
and you can't. But we should vote because it shows what we really believe. And half of the registered uh, voters who are Christian in California did not vote in the last election. And we're handing evil the keys to our homes. But do I think that my vote is going to bring revival? No. What brings revival is the church waking up out of its sleep and preaching and living the gospel. That's the act. And that's, Jesus says, you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. You're caught up with your programs and you're caught up with the, the designs that you have, but you've left me outside. I am the one who has the seven spirits, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and pastor, I'm speaking to you. You need to pray and seek God and walk in his spirit. And if you do this, he says, your name shall not be taken out of the book of life. In other words, I will recognize you as being mine throughout eternity. Sardis. Sardis is mentioned in history as having a Christian church all the way until 180 A.D. Sardis remained until 180 A.D., and then it died. It may have listened temporarily to Jesus. Remember that this letter was communicated to them between 90 and 96 A.D. It continued for 80, 90 more years. But eventually, it ceased to exist. They didn't listen. No church exists in Sardis. They had a name that they were alive. They were the church worth the drive. They were known by people everywhere. But in fact, they quenched the spirit. And when Jesus said, open up, it appears that they did. It appears that some repented. It appears that the church was able to continue. But eventually it went back to its dead condition. And prophetically, it ceased. God help us. And I say this because I love us. I love my church. I love you guys. God help us to come back to the first things. To live as if Jesus is returning. To be ready for him. To care about people enough to tell them the truth. And to live in such a way that, that God is honored. That our children see that we care. Because my children are going to model their life after the way they saw me live in many ways. And I've always wanted to be that sincere, believing father. I've always wanted to be that man who knew that the real church I have, the first and important church I have, is my home. It's my home. And then God gives me the privilege of influencing others. God help us all, every man in this room, the priest of your home to be the example if you've got children that your sons say I'm going to be like that man one day and to be that man if you have a daughter who says one day I want a man just like my dad I love the way he treats my mom I want a man like that God help us to be like that and to have a fire and a passion in our heart for Jesus Christ because he's even at the door he's coming soon and I'm going with him, and I hope you go with us too.
because one of these days, he's going to say, come up here, and I'm not going to stay a second longer. I'm going to say, I'm with you, Lord, all the way. Let's go to be with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to learn more about Pastor David or Calvary Chapel, Chino Valley, please visit our website at calvaryccv.org. Thanks for listening, and have a great day.